What is up, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It is Henry Zamoda and Danny Abdeljabar. Danny, welcome back home. What's up, man? How are you? I'm doing pretty well. So are you finally back? Yep, finally back. I spent probably the entire month of November at a funeral and two weddings, as I think I probably mentioned, and Thanksgiving. So it's been a hectic ride, uh, but I'm back now. You know, you know what's really funny about traveling? It kind of reminded me, and, and surprisingly, today, by the way, is my one-year anniversary in Puerto Rico. It's, it's still Thursday, December 1st here. And uh, going back for that long to the States really reminded me of why I went to Puerto Rico. You know, a question that I always get, and it's especially poignant this year because we had a hurricane, was like, why would you live there? Why would you live in Puerto Rico? Don't they always have, like, hurricanes and shit? Bro, I was in New York. And that same week, Buffalo got something like 80 inches of snow. And so I'm thinking to myself, why the fuck do you live there? And it snows like that all the time in places like that. 80 inches. Henry, you're like, what, 6'5", right? Something like that? I'm, yeah, give or take, 6'5". 80 inches is more than that. It's it's one. If you have to measure your snowfall in Henry's, that's that's a place that I wouldn't want to live. So... You know, I'll deal with the hurricanes. You guys keep your snow. <laughs> yeah, the weather sucks. It's colder than we anticipated. We, I thought that, so the beginning of November, it was unusually warm. Mm-hmm. So everyone in Brooklyn, you know how Brooklyn people are, they're like, oh my God, global warming. Um, like, this is so unusual. Meanwhile, everyone's really enjoying the nice weather that we're having in November. It's like it was like six, like high sixties uh, first week of November, and then a couple of weeks later, it was really just over a day. It switched from high sixties to thirty degree weather, and it's been cold and crappy and rainy, and it's never quite cold enough to snow, but it's always cold enough to just be a real uncomfortable rain. Yeah. Just yeah. like, oh, mm-hmm. it's raining and cold and windy. It's been t- The weather's been awful this November and then going into December. I imagine it's getting, going to get much worse, but it feels like, um, it just feels like uh, February weather, like February, early March weather, and it's and November, is, so. And this is why the more accurate title is called Climate Change and not Global Warming, <laughs> uh, because, you know, people get weather and climate mixed up all the time. Uh rapid swings in in temperature like that are are you know doing in no small part to climate change so <laughs> not gonna not gonna mansplain that to you but just you know i get where you're coming all right out <laughs> all right out gore don't scare away our new audience okay um i i agree though i question i almost moved to california when i uh at one point and the main reason was my the, what was driving me there was uh was the weather Yep. Um, I think it was one of the, I, it was like during the time I was really considering it was, I was, was like the worst winter in New York ever. And I was mm-hmm. like, I, I'm just done, just done. And I can't take good climate, but, um, I'm glad that you're back in your little beach community. It's very <laughs> nice there. And I hope to visit soon again. Um, cool. all right. So last episode we focused on, well, let me first, let, let me start this over because I guess we're in a series right now, so I should introduce this as episode four, right? We're on episode four in our yep. Causes of World War One series. So uh, first couple of episodes, we focused on 
the rise of Germany, uh, the the polarization of of the of the European security structures, and um, our previous episode. So we, we focused on Serbia, the situation that's going that was going on in the Balkans, and unlike you know when most people explain historiography or, or or go over this period, they always start right with art with the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand, and when you do that, you're just missing so much interesting context and so much context that explains like yeah. you know why exactly this event happened so that was you know one of the main goals of this of this series and that's why we're kind of putting a special focus on the situation in the balkans so last episode we did and this is, this is a crude name so i apologize and i don't mean to offend anyone who's serbian i actually like love serbia but um i, I find serbian history so fascinating and I love Serbian people, so don't jump down my throat. But we called it the, the twisted politics in Serbia because that's the only way to really describe this period in the 19th right. and 20th century. Just a hyper-nationalist state that was getting more and more aggressive, that was really politically unstable, and it was just a mess. And looking into Serbian history in the, 18, in the 19th and early 20th century, you can you can really see how the situation imploded the way it did. In short, Serbia was an extremely politically unstable. Um, you know, first it was a, mo- a vassal state of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, it was pro-Russia at that point when they were striving for their own independence, and then they were dominated by the pro-Austrian Obrenovich dynasty. For, for decades, for the you know for for uh, the, the the better half of the century, they were dominated by the Obrenovich dynasty, which were very um, you know they were Austrophiles. Well, in the last episode, and I encourage you guys to listen to it if you haven't already, we end it in 1903, where there's a brutal military coup, where both the Serbian king and queen were murdered, and they weren't just murdered like, you know, Biu Biu, the shot and killed, they were um, brutally Qaddafi-style murdered, right. meaning that they were um, shot up and then their bodies were desecrated and mutilated and uh, humiliated and hung up and, you know, pub- publicly embarrassed and shame. And when murders like that happen, it, it kind of represents this, like, kind of the hatred for that regime. Um, and also just it sends a message to other people that if you are going to be this bad this is going to be your fate but it was an it was a shocking event that shocked europe that shocked the rest of the world that this monarch was you know not just killed because monarchs are killed all the time they were brutally massacred so mm-hmm. listen to the previous episode if you if you want to hear kind of the story and the politics that lead up to that or if you haven't already but most importantly for for this episode after this coup that, that takes place in Serbia in 1903, Serbia reorients re, re, uh, itself from a, uh, you know, a pro-Austrian country to an anti-Austrian country. They pursue a pro-Russian policy. So they reverse their, their kind of patronage network or reverse their, uh, their, uh, you know, their alliance system. And the, the regicide network that pulls this coup off, they're actually the same group that, that assassinates Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Not the exact same people, but it's the same network. It's the same uh, 
It's it's just like it's kind of like the C it's like the CIA of Serbia type of thing. Right. But we'll get more into that, you know, these secret societies. Uh, so today we're going to focus on Austria-Hungary's reaction to this hostile Serbian state and how this all just leads up to the events of 1914. All right, so let's just pull it back a bit because I think I need to ask a basic question. It's kind of like a similar question that I asked when we were talking about the rise of the you know, German Empire you know, and, and wondering, like, what the hell is Prussia? Can we just set a baseline and just talk about what the hell is Austria-Hungary exactly? Yeah, it's a good question because it's, like, confusing. It's like having it's like Bobby Lee or something, having your first Ricky Bobby. Uh, <laughs> Ricky Bobby. It's, it's, like, it's like a NASCAR driver name, having two fir- a first, two, a first name, two first names uh, as, as your last name. But, um, it's like Trinidad uh, and Tobago today. What the yeah. hell is Trinidad and Tobago? Austria-Hungary. So Austria-Hungary, it was a union between the Austrian Habsburg Empire and then the Hungarian monarchy. This uh, dual monarchy was created after the Austrian Habsburgs were kicked out of Italy in 1859. And, um, you know, that also after they were shut out of the new German state by the Prussians in 1866. So this, this state, it was, a, it was a multinational, multilingual state. It had 11 nationalities, official nationalities, and at least 14 languages, probably more than 14 languages. But um, you had your, your, your Germans and your Hungarians, who were the dominant groups, but you also had your minorities, who were the Croatians, the Czechs, the Italians, uh, Lithuanians, Poles, Romanians, Ruthenians, uh, Serbs, Slovaks, Slovenes, Turks, and uh, you know I'm sure I'm sure there's some more ethnicities who are baked into this this uh, this state uh, construct. But there was an old saying about Austria-Hungary: it was a prisoner of nations. <laughs> I think that's what a lot Certainly. of uh, a lot, a lot of Cer- ways to describe it. It's, it certainly seems that way. Um, so, I mean, like this is this is like late eighteen hundreds. How do, how does a uh, an empire form around such disparate ethnic groups? Because a lot of the times you're seeing like, you know, these empires are are mostly homogenous, right? Uh, or at least a, a overwhelming majority. But this is a lot of different kind of people in this area. How how does that, how does that form? Well, you know, I don't think most of these empires are homogenous. I mean, the Russian Empire had the same thing going on, where they had they had even more languages than than Austria-Hungary. They had about a hundred different languages, and or at least a hundred languages spoken in the territories that uh, that Russia covered. I guess but, I'm comparing it more towards like the the German Empire, where yeah, there was a lot of different types of Germans, but generally speaking, they were all German. Well. The way that this construct is created, because I know what you're saying, like there's very clear ethnic identities all under this under this state. It's not like there's different dialects or different uh, regions. You know, they're very clear. You know, different ethnic groups. Or, um, well, one way to look at the Habsburg Empire, and um, you know, one way, just just a quick note throughout this episode. I'm going to be calling the Austria-Hungary, like, you know, different names. Um, when I say Habsburgs or Austrians or, or when I say Vienna, the, the, the capital, I, I mean the same state. So just take that in mind. 
Um, one way to look at the Habsburg Empire is that it was a security agreement that protected Christians in Central Europe from uh, from you know both Eastern and Southern invaders. Throughout history, Central Europe had been invaded too many times to count. You know, you can by the Huns, by the the Mongols, uh, and more recently by the Muslim Turks. The the Habsburg Empire was a buffer state against the Ottomans, and Vienna's big problem that they were running into in the mid 19th century was the 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 threat that that justified their entire existence was falling apart and um they were they were falling apart very fast the ottoman empire was in the process of being pushed out of europe by a by mainly a coalition of orthodox christians uh, in the balkans so the south slavs with the assistance of of uh the russian state simultaneously in europe there's the forces of liberalism and nationalism in there and they're and they're spreading uh basically to every single country and the different ethnicities of the habsburg empire they're catching the fever the the fe- the fever of uh ethnic national identity so there's this this great compromise that's made in in 1867 and um this was the first political arrangement made in response to this uh to this fever and the arrangement it established a dual monarchy in which austria agreed to share power with the magyars uh or the hungarians in order to, to to keep them in the empire meaning the the hungarians had their own king and and you know they were essentially kind of co-equal partners in in this state institution where you know they had their own parliament and things and you know the the prime minister was all, was hungarian so it was like a joint state operation where the two dominant uh ethnic groups uh had um a lot of like checking powers against each other uh, right. But meanwhile, and, and there were other minorities who who didn't, and there was tension between the Austrians and and the and the Hungarians. The Hungarians were like kind of more ag agriculture based. The Austrians were more developed. So you had those kind of di- those those kind of rural cultural differences, divide, right? Cultural mm-hmm. divides and and, mm-hmm. and those such things. But what's super interesting um, about that though is that you know Archduke Franz Ferdinand, the dude who we'll talk about a little later. You know, he was actually super aware of, you know, this issue that the monarchy created, like this kind of dueling, you know, uh, uh, ethnicity state. And he was actually blaming the Hungarians for most of the the empire's problems. So that's going to be important for later, but we we can talk about that later. Anyway, continue. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Franz Ferdinand was deaf was in that camp of uh, because there were different camps of of like hawks and doves and and. um, and opinions on, on how to save the Habsburg Empire, and he he fell more into the camp of, of uh, uh, kind of wanting to dilute the power of the Hungarians in the empire. But we'll 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 get to that. the The major concern for the Habsburgs is holding this all together, and, and it was becoming increasingly difficult, not just because of the growing nationalist pressures, but also because of the inability of the Turks to main control of their european subjects because the austria the the austrians essentially i mean yeah they started off 
as a bulwark against the 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 Muslim Turks, but they really depended on them to uh, to monitor the and sub- <laughs> subject, and also just to subject and control the the different ethnic nationalities or ethnic groups in the in the Balkan regions. Mm-hmm. Um, so as they fell, you know, Austria, Austrian foreign policy was to to prop them up and the and to keep that that state going the way it was. Um, in the 1800s, there were a series of uh, crises or crises. How do you say that word? Crises or crises? Crises. Crises. Whatever. Um, there was a series of events that triggered, uh, <laughs> that were triggered by, by Turkey's, uh, you know, ultimate decline. Ottoman Empire. Mainly, the, what's that? Ottoman Empire. <laughs> They're not yeah, Turkey yet. By the Ottoman Empire. Um name whatever same shit when i say turkey <laughs> i mean the ottoman empire when i say everyone knows what i mean mainly <laughs> the <clears throat> mainly um the big event is the is the bosnian uprising in 1875 and uh, what this does it, it creates a power vacuum in which austria hungary and russia um, are competing for influence in the balkans now it's important to note that austria hungary and Ru- Russia would, um, you know, they would placate each other. They would, they would never let things get too hostile. Um, you know, they were, in, they were part of the, the League of Three Emperors. Um, Germany was also uh, pushing for Russian and, and uh, Austria-Hungary uh, cooperation. German policy at the time, uh, especially in the Bismarck era, era, was to make sure that that. The Habsburgs in, in Russia would get along because their Germany's dealing with uh, with a revanchist France who who hates Germany. So their biggest fear is that France becomes allies with either um, you know Austria Hungary, who's you know predominantly Catholic, so they have that in common, or or Russia. So they want to keep Austria Hungary and Russia <clears throat> on you know on good terms with each other because that you know they don't want to be sandwiched in, but um. The problem was the new states in the Balkans had their own ambitions. And the ambitions of one Balkan state, Serbia, was uh, the big priority because the rulers of Serbia dreamt of one day uniting all Serbs and Croats in this greater Serbia. Um, you know, they were, they were trying to recreate the Serbian Empire from the, from the 13th century. Union with Bosnia, which had been part of the old uh, Serbia pre-Ottoman conquest, was the you know was was the cornerstone of this policy. It was kind of like their Jerusalem type of thing, where mm-hmm. you know uh, Kosovo was was you know this this very important city, and it was their birthright to to have it. Um, you know they were they were talking about this kind of pseudo national state that you know we we don't know that much about. Um, we talk about this a lot more in our in our last episode. So, for for more information on that, listen to that one. But um, to give you some some context, there were twice as many Serbs in the Habsburg Empire um, and in Bosnia Herzegovina. Um, there was about between both of them, there was seven point three million Serbs, and in Serbia, there was about three point three million Serbs. 
So they had double the population of Serbs than the actual Serbian state. Outside of Serbia than in Serbia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In, in the boundaries of Austria-Hungary. Mm-hmm. And uh, Bosnia at this time is being occupied by, by Austria. Right. Meaning uh, Serbian ambitions could only be realized at the expense of the territorial unity of the, of the Habsburg Empire. Under the monarch of Milan Obrenovic, Serbia was very pro-Austrian to the point where, and this is something I actually just read about. I didn't know this when we did our last episode. Um, Obrinovich, um, you know, the King Father Milan that we mm-hmm. were talking about, when he, when he abdicated his throne to his son Alexander, he had actually proposed to the Austrians that they just annex Serbia. <clears throat> that that would be the best way forward if you guys just annex Serbia. That's and, crazy. Um, and then the, the Austrians said, no, we're not doing that. But kind of puts a little bit of context around... Puts a little more context around like the the hatred towards the Obrenoviches, you know, and that dynasty. Um, you know, it's like can't beat him, join him. <laughs> he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, just, just take us. <laughs> we'll just be a part of your thing now. Yeah, I, um, I don't know the exact reasons why, but it just sounds. I mean, there's states ask states to <clears throat> to annex them all the time. Um. But, um, you know, the Austrians say no. And things, things change, obviously, in 1903 after the brutal regicide of, of uh, Milan's son. Milan is dead at this time, he, and he had actually been exiled by his son. But um, King Alexander and Queen Drago, the, the unpopular monarch. So thing, the relationship between, between Serbia and, and Austria drastically changes. What's interesting is Vienna initially thought that the new king, who was uh, Peter uh, Karadjordjevic, who was, um, you know, the Karadjordjevic family is like the competing dynasty with, with the Obrenovich family in, 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 uh, in Serbia, who had more of a pro-Russia stance. Um, they actually, the, the Vienna thought that the new regime there could have been Austriophiles. So they were the the first state to actually recognize this new, you know, this coup regime that so many other states were, were, were really skeptical about recognizing. However, the reality was that this new king of Serbia, even if he was an Austrophile, he was only a figurehead anyway. The real power was with the Serbian Radical Party, the, the the main opposition to the previous Serbian regime. And the Serbian Radical Party, they hated Vienna. They hated Austria-Hungary. So they quickly realize, and Vienna, they quickly realize uh, that, you know, this is there's going to be problems here and they start to impose economic sanctions on them. Um, there, there are some other states who are putting sanctions on them, notably Britain. So they joined Britain in the, in that sanction campaign. And, uh, we spoke about this briefly about the pig mm-hmm. war where right. Serbia's main export was, was agriculture, uh, food services, <clears throat> uh, food and pigs and livestock. So they denied the max, they denied Serbia access to Austrian markets. Um, now this, what this does is severing of ties 
leads to the door opening back up for Russia to be the predominant power influence in Serbia. Um, to, just to give you some background, Russia had always had this kind of uh, camaraderie with the South Slavs. They, the previous dynasty hated Russia because Russia put favor into Balk- more so Bulgaria uh, in the 1800s rather than Serbia. So Serbia had this kind of deep resentment for that. But this will get too off track. Um, Russia has this new door. To, to get its foot back in with, with the government in Belgrade. And um, what, what really escalates things is that Serbia creates a secret customs union with, with Bulgaria um, with the help from the Russians. The Russians are the ones who facilitate this, meaning that they create a free trade block. And Vienna became worried that this free trade block was the first step to a league of, uh, of Balkan states that would ultimately be hostile to uh, to Austria-Hungary. So here's a, a quote from, from Chris Clark, who I shamelessly have used a lot of information from him, but he's a great historian, so it's a I good have book to. Too. <clears throat> um, but Chris Clark says, It is easy to write this off as Austrian paranoia, but in reality, the policymakers in Vienna were not far off the mark. The Serbian-Bulgarian Customs Agreement was in fact a third of a sequence of a secret alliances between Serbia and Bulgaria, of which the first two were already clearly anti-Austrian in orientation. A treaty of friendship and a treaty of alliance had already been signed in Belgrade on, on May 12, 1904, in circumstances of the strictest secrecy. Dumba, the Austrian foreign minister, had done his utmost to find out what was going on between the Bulgarian delegates visiting the city and their Serbian interlopers. But though his suspicions were raised, he had failed to penetrate the curtain of confidentiality surrounding the, the negotiations. Vienna's fear of Russian involvement, it turned out, was well-founded. St. Petersburg was indeed notwithstanding the Austro-Russian detente and the immense effort of a disastrous war with Japan working towards the creation of a Balkan alliance. A key figure in the negotiations was the Bulgarian diplomat Ditmanor Rizov, Sometime, sometime agent of the Russian Asiatic Department. On September 15, 1904, at 11 o'clock in the morning, the Russian ambassador in Belgrade and Sofia were simultaneously and secretly presented with copies of a Serbian-Bulgarian treaty, uh, treaty of alliance by the foreign minister of Serbia and Bulgaria, respectively. Now, <clears throat> the reason why this is such a big deal is because, again, Serbia is, uh, is caught the fever the, the hyper-national, you know, they caught the fever and had the highest temperature out of everyone uh, in, in Europe in terms of just uh, being super-duper nationalist. And, you know, they have this very large diaspora who is within the Austro-Hungarian borders. Now, this is a quote from uh, Joseph Pomenkowski, who is the Austrian-Hungarian military liaison in Belgrade. So he writes, Serbia would number Serbia would number along the empire's enemy in the event of a future military conflict. The problem was less the attitude of the government as such than the ultra-nationalist orientation of the political culture as a whole. Even if a sensible government were at the helm, it would be in no position to pre- prevent the all-powerful radical chauvinist from launching an adventure. More dangerous, however, than Serbia's open enmity and its miserable army 
was it was the fifth column work of the Serbian radicals in peacetime, which systemically poisons the attitude of our South Slav population and could, if the worst came to worst, create very serious difficulties for our army. So um, the big fear for the, the Habsburgs, uh, you know, Vienna, the government in Vienna was uh, was the political movement of uh, irredentism um, in Belgrade. So the um, the yearning to be part of like your home, your origin state right. was what it's they a, ultimately feared. Irredentism here is a big word and I had to Google it a little while ago. It's a policy of advocating the restoration <clears throat> to a country of any territory formerly belonging to it. Right. So good use of the word irredentism would be like Russia claiming Crimea because it used to belong to them. Yeah, Don Don Bass, or that that's that's perfect perfect example. There's a lot of similarities, and obviously there's not a perfect match. But I doing research it made me think a lot of um, like doing you know reading more about the Serbian politics at this time reminded me a lot of the conflict in in uh, Russia and Ukraine. Uh, it mm-hmm. made me think about it. Um, there's a lot of parallels. A lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I kind of feel that Austria, Hungary, ha, I mean, there's different ways to tackle it, but I'm sure you guys can kind of connect the dots of, of how they're similar. Um, but what brings this situation from level six on the danger meter to level eight or nine is the crisis that breaks out in 1908 when Austria, Hungary formally annexes Bosnia, Herzegovina. Now, um, Austria-Hungary had occupied Bosnia since 1878. So they had already had their presence there. So there was already this, this movement that was um, you know, very sympathetic to the, Serbian, the Serbs who were in Bosnia. Um, Austria, they were supposed to be peacekeepers um, after the Ottomans were pushed out. But it was supposed to be a temporary arrangement that came out of the Congress of Berlin. But by all means, this was a permanent occupation, and, and everyone knew this. And um, it was just like the reality on the ground that, that Austria was going to indefinitely stay there. And, and a lot of people, uh, you know, they, they either kind of picture like a, like a, uh, a stale, like a frozen occup- occupation or just the eventual integration into, into uh, the official empire. So, um, I mean, I guess the, it begs the question, like, why annex Bosnia? I mean, it's, it doesn't, like, border Austria-Hungary particularly. Like, what's the deal? The reason why that they decide to annex Bosnia is, I mean, there's a lot of different reasons. The one, the I think what historians will typically pull up... Um, you know, monetary reasons. Um, there's another reason the Young Turks just took over in the Ottoman Empire. So there was a lot of fear that they could try to uh, renege on old lost territory to the Habsburgs. Wait, so, wait, wait. The, the Young Turks, like like that Chank guy on the YouTube channel, What's is that the same? 
No, not that, not that guy, not not that show. Um, <laughs> but is it the same? Is is that where they get the name from? I don't know how they chose that name. I have zero clue how they what the thought process was behind their show and how they named uh-huh. that. I just it's it's kind of strange because the maybe that's where it comes tur- from. The the, the young I don't, the young Turk. I feel like you'd want to avoid the the young Turks because the Armenian gen- genocide happened under their their role. But whatever. I don't I don't know how they came <laughs> up with their name. Um, <clears throat> interesting name. It's like if I if I uh, if I if we named our show like the I don't know. The young Palestinian freedom fighters. I don't know. P- the, the the PLA. <laughs> it's like we named our show Hamas. Um, <laughs> but um, what was the point I was making about the Young Turks? Yeah, the they took Turks, over the Ottoman the, Empire. Yeah, right. the Young Turks had taken over taken over the Ottoman Empire. So I guess there was a fear that they could renege on lost territory. Um, that they had formerly given up to, you know, various treaties to uh, the ground that they were they were forfeiting throughout the nineteen uh, throughout the nineteen hundreds. So why not just take that territory now if you're if you're going to be um, indefinitely occupying it? There was also a new Austrian foreign minister. His name was Alois Lexa von Ehrenthal. And um, Arenthal was in that camp, the, the same camp as uh, Franz Ferdinand that we were talking about earlier, where he was becoming disillusioned with the dualist system of the empire. Um, what they wanted to do is that they wanted to dilute the power of the Hungarians. So their solution was a tripartite state with the third elite class coming from the South Slavs mainly the Croats. But that could only be possible if Bosnia was fully annexed. And of course, a South Slavic royal class in in Austria-Hungary would be a a bust on Serbian influence. So that, you know, that that was like one of their solutions to this is to make a South Slavic, you know, make like a triple uh, monarchy uh, bring them in and, and have their own um, kind of uh, ruling royal class and within the state of Austria. They'd still be third on the run, order. though. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, who knows what would happen? Because you know, they were there was a lot of uh, friction between the the Hungarians and the and the um, and the Austrians at this time. So, right. Um, I mean, I don't I don't know what the exact. I mean, that's just we're we're, we're dealing with uh, with. Uh, um, we're trying to predict history that never happened, type of thing. But what's what's interesting is that Arenthal he actually advocates a good relationship with the Russians. This is act, this leads to to um, a larger crisis, though. He he gets the Russians to agree with their annexation of Bosnia in return for for just. Um, they get, it's something really stupid, and it's it's um, the Russian leadership at this time is is um, you know there's there's a lot of incompetence. They 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 agree to uh, they they essentially let Austria annex Bosnia in return for them 
supporting their endeavor to getting better access to the Turkish Straits. So not it's even not even like access. they're giving them access. Like they're like, we'll endorse your, your, you know, you getting better access to the Turkish Straits. And that was the, that was basically the agreement. Well, it turned out that wasn't even possible. Like the Austrians couldn't promise that at all. The British were totally against it. The British had a rival, you know, an imp- a big imperial rivalry with the Russians. So the Russian government looked like idiots. And when Arenthal announces the for- formal annexation of Bosnia in 1908, it triggers an international crisis. And the, the, the Russian government, um, you know, they see the, black, the, the backlash from the pan-Slavic movement that's very prevalent in Russia at the time. So the uh, Russian minister, uh, Izvalsky, just straight up denies any involvement in a deal with Vienna. So he's like, no, this never happened. What are you talking about? We never knew anything about that you were going to try to uh, annex Bosnia. Why are you trying to pull this into it? You guys are lying. And the Russian government refuses to recognize Vienna's claim. And to make a long story short, Vienna has all the receipts. So they have all the <laughs> correspondence of, of like the Russian minister saying, hey, yeah, it's fine. Like, you know, they, they have all the, the information and they go public with it. Um, so they start leaking all these letters to the press. That's juicy. And uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it becomes this, like, you know, this international humiliation episode for the Russian government. Um, and then eventually... What really kind of adds salt to the wound is that, you know, Russia is, in a, is not in a great place right now. They just lost the war to Japan in 1905. They had, you know, a, a lot of ships sunk. And um, Germany steps in, Austria's ally, and says to, to, to Russia, if you don't recognize Vienna's claim to Bosnia, we're going to go to war with you. <laughs> so they... Um, the Russians are just not in a position where they can really fight them, and they they have to let the position, they have to let it go. They have to take it. They're forced to take it on the chin. So I have another quote So from, from Clark. Arenthal has traditionally carried the lion's share of the responsibility for the annexation crisis. Is this fair? To be sure, the Austrian foreign minister's maneuvers lack diplomacy transparency. He chose to operate with the tools of, of the old diplomacy, confidential meetings, the exchange of pledges, and secret bilateral agreements, rather than attempting to resolve the annexation issue through an international conference involving all the signatories of the Treaty of Berlin. This preference for for, uh, for, furtive, for furtive arrangements made it easier for Izvolsky to claim that he, that he, and by extension Russia, had been hoodwinked by the slippery Austrian minister. There was also, uh, I'm not reading from this, there was also um, I think Arenthal was Jewish, and you know there's that that angle where they were like, "Oh, he's a Jew," and all this. Um, yet the evidence suggests that the crisis took the course that it took because Izalski lied in the most extravagant fashion in order to save his job and reputation. The Russian foreign minister had made two serious errors of judgment. He had assumed, firstly, that London would support his demand for the opening of the Turkish Straits to Russian warships. He had also grossly underestimated the impact of the annexation on Russian nationalist opinion. According to one account, he was initially perfectly calm when news of the annexation reached him in Paris in October 8, 1908. 
It was only during this stay in London a few days later when the British proved uncooperative and he got wind of the press response in St. Petersburg that he realized his error, panicked, and began to construct himself as Arenthal's dupe. <laughs> so, um, this whole, in short, this whole situation, it just destroys any type of cooperation between Austro, the, you know, the, the Austrians and the Russians. And at the same time, it also fans the flames of Serbian nationalism. Um, another consequence, it, it makes Germany look like, um, or rather, it makes Austria-Hungary look like a satellite state for Germany because Germany has to step in and be like, all right, we're your big brother, we'll beat up your bullies type of thing. Mm -hmm. So it kind of just uh, creates just more tension on all fronts. Right. It's not good for really anyone. Yeah. It's not going to be good for it. It's like in Seinfeld. It's like, that's not going to be good for business. That's not going to be good for anyone. Um, So in response, the Russians start taking a more assertive policy towards Vienna because, uh, you know, you think about it from the Russian perspective, the empire is losing a lot of credibility. They just lost the war in Japan, which, um, you know, which, which shut them off from the prospect of Far Eastern expansion. They had recently started working with the British in, um, in, uh, in like Persia and Afghanistan, where they were capitulating a lot of like uh, influence there. Um, so for the for the Russians and also for Austria-Hungary, the Balkans really remained one of the only um, arenas where they could they could project imperial power. Um, not to mention in Russia, there was this intense public sympathy for the South Slavs and the Balkans. Um, you know, they they uh, really interpreted the annexation as this brutal betrayal. What's and what's also underrated in these in these. Um, kind of geopolitical stories is just like the personal relationship like this the, you know this diplomatic shit really comes down to a lot of personal relationships so um there, there was some clear dislike between the foreign ministries of, of russia and austria at the time so um after the crisis in 1909 the russian foreign ministry they they appoint a man named Nikolai Hartwig to the Russian embassy in Belgrade. And Hartwig is a fanatic Slavophile. And in addition, he has a deep personal friendship with, with Serbia's, uh, with Serbia's um, prime minister, uh, Nikola Pasic. And once in office, Hartwig, he, he pushes... Belgrade into taking a, a, a uh, more hostile position towards towards Vienna. Now, um, in 1911, there is another major incident that that uh, that uh, pulls another block from the Jenga stack, and uh, that's Italy. And uh, Italy and the Ottoman Empire they go to war for possessions in in like Libya and in some of the islands. Um, you know, some of the islands that like Carthage and Rome used to fight over, you know, that type of thing. <laughs> right. Um, and they, um, so Italy, Italy goes to war with the Ottoman Empire. So they like storm Libya. It's actually super interesting because it's one of the first wars where they start using uh, 
aerial reconnaissance mm-hmm. um, where it's, it's like one of the first wars where they really start using planes. But um, they basically kind of signaled like the true end of the Ottomans and the Balkan states decided to take advantage of this opportunity. Um, and, and the Italian government, here, here's from the Italian prime minister. He kind of forecast what's going to happen. The integrity of what remains of the Ottoman Empire is one of the principles on which the equilibrium and peace of Europe is based. Can it be in the interest of Italy to shatter one of the cornerstones of the old edifice? And what if, after we attack Turkey, the Balkans begin to stir? And what if a Balkan war provokes a clash between the two power blocks in a European war? Can it be that we shoulder the responsibility of putting a match to the powder? Which I found really interesting. Um, that he kind of forecast what what's going to happen. It it's just everything that we're we're talking about. It it makes it seem that something like the assassination was just almost inevitable. If it wasn't that, it would it would be something else. Right. But um, the point the point is, the the Balkan states are smelling the blood, and with the help of uh, with with Hartwig, the the Russian uh, delegate to, to uh, Belgrade. Serbia and Bulgaria, they create a treaty in, in March of 1912 with the aim of uh, driving the Turks out of Europe for, for finally for good. They're slowly doing it um, over, over a period of about uh, 70 years at this point, slowly pushing them out. But this is going to be the final nail in the coffin where they're going to be back. There's going to be no Turkish land in, in Europe. Well... Together with Greece, Montenegro, they form a Balkan League. So just like Austria feared that they were going to create a Balkan League, they do that. And um, in, 19, in 1912, October, they declared war on Turkey. Um, and by the end of November, the, the, this Balkan League it defeats Turkish armies. And it drives them back to... Um, they don't have any other land except the Gallipoli Peninsula and, and uh, Istanbul, Constantinople. So, um, and, and what freaks Austria out is that Serbia raises an army of 200,000 soldiers. So they're, they're like putting big armies on the field. And, um, now they're also on the verge of getting an outlet in the Adriatic Sea. See, Mm. so they're becoming like, they're on the verge of becoming like a real state. So if Russia... And just going back to Russia, if Russia had publicly supported Serbian claims, a general European war probably would have broke out in 1912. Just because of the increase of, of Serbia, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So interesting. After after the war with the Turks, the interestingly enough, the Balkan League they start to turn on each other. So in 1913, the Bulgarians, um, you know, they attack its member states. And then there's a response. Bulgaria is defeated. Meanwhile, you know, Serbia continues to to expand its influence. Um, the Austrians they try to play. They try to uh, uh, create an Albanian state to to uh, contain the Serb threat, but it doesn't really work. And by the beginning of 1914, Vienna comes to the conclusion that a military confrontation 
with the total annihilation of the Serbian army was the only way that the Habsburg Empire was going to survive this. As, um, as the uh, Austrian chief of staff, uh, von Hotzendorf, he spelled out in a letter to Franz Ferdinand, the, unifi- the unification of the South Slav race is one of the powerful national movements which can neither be ignored nor kept down. The question can only be whether unification will take place within the boundaries of the monarchy that is at, is at the expense of Serbia's independence or under Serbia's leadership at the expense of the monarchy. The cost of the monarchy would be the loss of its South Slav provinces and thus of utmost its entire coastline. The loss of territory and prestige would relegate the monarchy to the status of a small power. So they understand that it's either the South Slavs are going to unite. The Serbs are going to unite no matter what. So it's either going to be within our borders or it's going to be outside our borders in a hostile state. And if it's outside the borders, then our, then our monarchy is done. We're, we're done. Um, now, the problem for the, the Hawks, really, in, in, in Austria is that any confrontation with Serbia would ultimately draw Russia in. And the hope was that the German threat of military intervention, as in 1909 prior during the, the, the Bosnia crisis, would keep Russia on the sidelines if a war were to happen. So um, the Austrian government in, in, in early 1914, they, um, you know, they, they reached the conclusion that they need to do this. And um, they start to do military maneuvers in Bosnia with the goal to prepare an army which could be used to invade Serbia. And it was suggested that the emperor's nephew, Franz Ferdinand, the successor of the throne, and uh, also the army inspector of the imperial troops should pay a visit to the area. And the visit was, um, you know, first, it was to, to display his sympathy for the development of Southern Slav aspirations. And of course, when I say that, I mean within the framework of the Habsburg Empire. And then the other reason why he was there, it was because he was, uh, the scene, he was looking at how the preparations were going. So he was he was examining the army. So an announcement is made on March 1914 that um, you know as part of an official visit to Bosnia, the the uh, you know the Archduke and his wife would be driving uh, you know through Sarajevo, the Bosnian capital, and um, the date selected is the is June 28th, which is a very significant date in Serbian history. It, it, it marks almost like every important date in Serbian history for some reason falls on June 28th. But most notably, yeah. it is the anniversary of the uh, Turkish victory of, of Kosovo in 1389, the, the war that, that terminated the, the, uh, you know, the old Serbian Empire state, you know, the, the mighty battle of Kosovo. And to pull this back... Um, the Serbian Nationalist Society that that kills Archduke Franz Ferdinand had been in existence for over a decade at this point. It was just taking different forms. The first form was a conspiracy of military officers 
um, who, you know, who brutally murdered, you know, an unpopular king and queen of Serbia. And then, you know, this regicide network never really went away. It just operated in the shadows. There was a, the, the Austrian government, they knew about this group. It wasn't like they were a complete mystery. And um, so I have, so here's a report from November 9th, for <clears throat> November 12th, 1911. Um, the Austrian minister of Belgrade, he, he uh, notified Vienna of the existence of an association of uh, existing officers. And the only thing that they knew was that it was called the Black Hand. And the dominant figure of the Black Hand was a man named Ab- Abyss. And if you all listened to our last episode, Abyss was the ringleader of the group that carried out the 1903 regicide. So this is from an Austrian report on the situation. The program of the movement consists in the removal of all personalities in the country who stand in the way of the greater Serbian idea and the enthronement of a leader who will be ready to lead the fight for the unification of all Serbs. And here's from a follow-up report. The network had acquired semi-official character. It appeared that the government was fully informed on all members of the Black Hand and on their activity. The fact that the Minister of War, uh, a protector of the organization, remained in office was a sign of its growing political influence. And then um, I found this that really, really interesting right here. So um, this, one of the key things that really signaled the, the existence of this weird <coughs> secret network was in uh, January 1914. Um, so I'll read this right from, this is from, uh, from Sleepwalkers. In January 1914, attention focused on the trial of a regicide officer by the name of Vemic, who had been notorious in 1903 for carrying about with him in a suitcase, a desiccated flap of flesh that he had cut from one of Queen Drago's breasts oh, as a trophy God. of the night of, of June 11th. Oh. In October 1913, during the Second Balkan War, Vimic shot dead a Serbian recruit for being too slow to follow an order and was tried by a military tribunal. His acquittal by a court staff entirely by senior officers triggered uproars in parts of the Belgrade press, and Vimic was called for a, a retrial, retrial before the Supreme, Serbian Supreme Court. But his sentence, a mere 10 months of imprisonment, was cut short by a royal pardon, extracted by the military leadership from the king at the end of December 1913. <clears throat> this guy's a total dick. <laughs> this guy's a, uh, so, like a psychopath. Um, yeah. And, you know, carrying the... the desiccated flap of flesh that he cut from the, the queen's <sighs> breast as a trophy in a suitcase. Like, what a freak. Like, what a complete freak. He had he had titty skin in his briefcase from the queen yeah. that he cut off. That's fucking gross and, and fucking, like you said, just absolutely psychopathic, sociopathic, all of the pathics. <laughs> Just a complete nut job, whack job, crazy, crazy psycho person. And this, fact, this, is the, I mean, this is the kind of people that we're dealing with with the in the black hand. They were so well, serious about. Yeah, they were super like, serious. Serbian nationalists. <laughs> one thing that they were really, one thing that you could give to them is that they were really serious. 
<laughs> they were super yeah. serious about their goals. Right. Uh, they, so they, serious they, that they did crazy shit. How the more I read about the Black Hand, and they when I I started really reading about this stuff like maybe four years ago, um, like the the Black Hand, like when we and started like their the show. Story, yeah. right, right when we around when we started the show, I I really started getting into this subject, and they immediately, um, or learning about more about Azov Battalion. I started learning more about Azov probably like a year later. And um, that group reminds like Azov Battalion or like the right sector in um, mm-hmm. in Ukraine, like the real hardcore nationalist. They like I feel like there's so many parallels between this group and that group. Like I always kind of use them as a benchmark of like real hot, like real crazed, uh, you know, uh, nationalist. Um, I mean, yeah, that's, that's like the that's like the end point of extreme nationalism. Right. And I think like you can make parallels to a lot of different extreme nationalists groups uh and you know a, a lot of a lot of the series that we've done on on separatist groups takes it to that level as well maybe maybe not quite as crazy as the black hand like they do some crazy shit but like that's like the ultimate endpoint of extreme nationalism is is crazy groups like the black hand <laughs> yeah it's like it's like, you know, it's like the final pokemon evolution of nationalism <laughs> of yeah, yeah nationalism. that's yeah that's it's your it's your uh charizard or whatever right it's, um, it's, it's frieza's final form golden frieza's black hand frieza you know like it's 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 just nuts anyway yeah um it's it's bad that, it's not it's not <laughs> it's not great it's no. not i i wouldn't describe what's going on as as great no so well, and, and 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 just just one more point. So the point I'm not trying. I'm reading this not only to just say, oh, this is such what a sick bastard. I'm reading it just to give you an idea that this was this was done without really any accountability. Um, you know, there was no accountability for someone doing. And, and I'm not just talking about the carrying the body part. I'm talking about murdering a a, a soldier, like a recruit. Right. So there's no accountability for their actions and and and. When there's no accountability and, and something that this is something that's kind of a trend I've noticed. So um, if you read about like Japan, the Imperial Japan, when they like did a lot of their war crimes and in, in uh, like Nanjing and stuff, there was there's evidence that they were there was like incentivized uh, murdering civilians. Right. Um, Scalpings like mm-hmm. in, like like it was like in newspapers and stuff. Um there's like no accountability for 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 war crimes or from for just real nasty shit. Um, you kind of see that tr- like when there's no accountability for 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 that. That's kind of like a sign that that nationalism or that you know that has reached a real bad level. Um, right. But let's talk about the assassin, like the actual story. So the actual. Right conspiracy the, the event because the, the assassination in itself because it's just so when i think about this it's such a the weirdest thing i found find about the assassination of archduke ferdinand is that it was a hot really hot everyone knew that how dangerous of a situation this was to yeah to it was this. just like really stupid. not a single like your dumb blacksmith son uh, who's like, I'm just a blacksmith in London and I don't know nothing about the world, would know that this was a horrible, th- like a horrible idea. Or maybe just really the times are different idea. where we don't have these like huge security details. And 
I mean, presidents. They don't ruin it all. That's, world that's leaders. Part of my fun story. <laughs> yeah. Um, people get murdered. I mean, heads of states get, get murdered all the time. But the fact that they were just like, let's take a stroll through a hostile city. <laughs> and then yeah, just, just like, the hmm, let's take it. the scenic view. Uh, Niles, turn there. I would like to pass by some of the nice uh, scenic route. And then just without really a security detail or anything like or you know there was security it's detail, it's even worse it's even worse than that snipers on the that. roof and shit like that i'm just like <laughs> how the hell did they let this go on like were they asked like was this like hey we want a war with them maybe they'll maybe they'll kill them and we'll get our war <laughs> i don't know let's talk let's talk about this the actual assassination story all right so before we jump into that i do want to uh, segue with some of the last points you were making because you know us talking about the the context and the history especially around the black hand is important because part of that um of this story with you know with leading up to this war was that the black hand was real and it was a thing and it was clearly being supported by the serbians and and that point i think was very very clear um to everyone, and examples like this, uh, uh, like this dude who's carrying around the titty flesh, right, uh, getting off with literally murder, um, it it kind of erodes the uh, very publicly. It erodes the plausible de- deniability of you know these super radical the the influence of these super radical nationalist groups in Serbia and their influence over at least Serbian domestic politics. So. A big part of the question about the assassination of uh, Archduke Franz Ferdinand was, you know, was it the black hand? You know, like, did, did did Gabriel Princip, the guy who killed him, was he groomed by this group, right? Was this a setup, you know, by this group? Or did he radicalize himself because of all of the reasons that we talked about uh, of, you know, growing, you know, uh, uh, Serbian nationalism in the Balkans? It, you know, Spoiler alert, there's no really good answer for that. And it's super hard to tell the story super accurately um, because we're missing so much critical pieces of information. But I kind of like to believe that it's both. And I'll tell you why. So like I said, there's there's little actually documented evidence of the planning that that has come up for this particular assassination attempt. And most historians are left with this you know, kind of just going off of post-war retellings of the story or testimonies by the assassins themselves who were obviously under extreme pressure. Let me read that as torture probably, right? Uh, to give up information about why they killed Archduke Franz Ferdinand. And, you know, the, the group, both the group that was responsible for the planning and their alleged collusion with the Serbian state were highly secretive, right? And they were damn good at keeping it that way too. So most of the assassins that were arrested and and, and tried and deposed didn't talk. And of the ones that did, some of them downplayed their involvement. Others gave testimony, which was totally contradictory to other testimonies that were given. So it was kind of a clusterfuck. So this is this is what makes it so hard to really figure out who did it? I mean, we know who did it, literally, right? But, like, who actually pulled the strings and set it up, right? And today I'm going to give you what I think is my best summary of what went down 
based on what we've read in sources like, you know, the Sleepwalkers, which we've been using liberally <laughs> across these last couple episodes, but also uh, around other things that we've read um, in, in contrary opinion. And I will warn you, though, this event is so pivotal in history and historians and normies like Henry and I have focused on it so intensely and poured over every single detail of it and have come up with many, many versions of how it all went down. So if I miss something or if I get something wrong, <laughs> just know that I'm doing my best. Okay. <laughs> um, where do I start? Thanks, Danny. <laughs> I just had to put out a disclaimer because like, I, I was happy, Henry, that you asked me to like take this part of the story because I find it so fascinating, but it's also like, it's like the story that everyone knows. So now I'm like incredibly nervous that I'm going to fuck it up somehow, <laughs> but hopefully I got it. Um, it's, it's the, uh, well, most people are like, who I was talking to somebody about it and you know, this person is very smart, much smarter than I am and, and everything, but didn't really know much about world war one. And, um, He's like, so who do they shoot again? Archduke somebody again? So this is like a really educated, smart person who, who's a doctor. And mm -hmm. he's like, Archduke who again? What? Yeah. It's, it's, so um, this this person did not know who Arch didn't know who Archduke Ferdinand was. He just knew he was like some guy who was killed. Was, German, was, it, was it German again or what? So I think what did most what did, people what did your wife say again for uh, uh, she, when we were in Puerto Rico and we were talking about World War One, she said like uh, Franz something else. Ferdinand Magellan. <laughs> she was she like Archduke that? Ferdinand Magellan. Yeah, I remember that. Ferdinand. In the car and we were talking about it. She was like, oh, I know this one for when we were talking about like how World War One started. She was like, they killed Archduke Ferdinand Magellan or something like that. <laughs> and yeah. <laughs> yeah, when I was in Puerto Rico, just to give you a, a, a behind the scenes, that's when we started discussing um, what made me what made me interested in doing something like this. Was I read a pamphlet, some so, like some pamphlet um, that um, that was like I'm re I'm really interested in this again, and I used to be so much more interested in this, so I wanted to do an episode on this. But yeah, we were asking, we were we were like asking questions um, while we were driving through the rainforest. Uh, to my wife because my wife is like a complete normie and she like i always gauge ask her things to get a she's my window into the normal world of what like mm -hmm. a normal person um cares about or and retains about yeah and she's also very very like she's an educated person who has her master's and and you know went to uh, Vanderbilt and got her master's degree in Boston College and it's like you know she's better educated than I am so I always ask her things like like what does she know to get a gauge of like what a normal like what a normal person would know because she does not share my same autistic um, interest in history and politics <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. so but yeah Archduke Franz Ferdinand Magellan was right. her was her was her answer <laughs> not to not to uh roast her too hard but it was just it, it was, was just i don't funny. know it was a funny point and it kind of related to you the the other um uh, uh encounter that you had with this so hopefully you know you never heard the story and and this is super interesting to you and you just take my account as the truth so <laughs> all right uh let's go with that so um all right where do i start Okay, I want to start with that guy, Apis or Abis. Uh, you've been calling him Abyss. Abyss a, a lot, but it's with a P. Is it Apis? Abyss? 
Apis. Abyss. Abyss just sounds more badass. Honestly, that's okay, why we're I call gonna call him, him Abyss. Yeah. Okay, we're calling him Abyss because a piss. He sound, a piss sounds like I'm pissing. <laughs> I need to piss. take a piss. Hey, I need to take a piss. <laughs> so a piss. Oh, you need to piss again? What? You, come on, we need to complete this episode. You need to. No, I need a piss. <laughs> All right, all right, go real quick. I need to no, take a piss. Serbian abyss. <laughs> abyss sounds like, oh, the abyss into the abyss. So I just call him abyss. I don't give a fuck okay, if it's abyss. wrong or not. We'll it's way that. cooler. So abyss, that, that Serbian ar- army. And no one's fucking judging us critically right now. Not a single no. damn person in the world. It's like, hey, you guys are phonies. These guys are fat phonies. You called him abyss when his name was Abyss. You can't even pronounce his real Serbian name, douchebag. Um, <laughs> I mean, sure. I, I wouldn't put it behind some of the uh, some of the negative reviews we've gotten, just like making fun of the way we say things. Um, yeah, well, yeah, fuck them. Anyway, <laughs> so abyss, I don't care about them. abyss, whatever you want to call him, the Serbian officer uh, who we talked about earlier, and if you remember from the last episode, he killed or tried to kill the Serbian king a couple times and eventually succeeded, storming the palace, threw his mutilated body out a window, you know, that guy. Um, so that murder ended with the formation of, uh, like we've been talking about, the Serbian nationalist government. Um, and the first commandment of Serbian policy was, you know, principle of national unity, meaning the unification of all the Serbs within the boundaries of a Serbian state, right? That's uh, irredentism, right? Uh, but... The, the idea was where a Serb dwells, that's Serbia, right? And they argue that everyone who inhabited all of those lands who were Serbian were actually everyone's just a Serb, period. And that new government, they created all these secret committees yeah, that ended up sponsoring Serbian guerrilla movements in different parts of the Balkans to, prov- to promote this national unity in places like Bosnia, right? So one of those secret committees is the scary-sounding Serbian group that we just called the Black Hand, right? So we've already described them. And Abyss, he's a huge part of it, right? And nobody really knows why Abyss targets specifically the Archduke because he didn't really leave a straightforward motive for wanting to do so. I mean, we can guess, but you know, he and other Serbian nationalists you know, they didn't really have a particular gripe with the Archduke. Quite the opposite, actually. I mean, by his own words, you know, um, Gavrilo Princip, the, the kid that actually killed the Archduke, said, as the future sovereign, he would have prevented our union by carrying through certain reforms. So let me pull it back a little bit. As the heir, the Archduke actually wanted to bring in reforms to the empire, which would have given places like Bosnia more autonomy. We talked about that already you know, kind of like the tripartite idea. And that's generally a good thing for Bosnians who are already living under, you know, the thumb of the of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. But it's kind of a bad thing for the idea of a unified Balkan state under the Serbs. So most historians argue that the plot to kill Archduke was intended to shake things up politically, weaken Austria-Hungary, and give it more room for a, a Serbian nationalist state. But what's ironic is that you know, Archduke Ferdinand's assassination, what's ironic about that is that he was basically offed for trying to do the right thing, or at least the right thing in the framework of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, right? Well, let me jump in for one second, because I think there's something important to to, to note, and it's this is going to sound crude, a little crude, but um, Bosnia was, a, is it, to this day, brought Bosnia, unfortunately, is a political backwater 
and it was a backwater back then, meaning that the literacy rates were very low. It was yep, among the poorest mm-hmm. regions in the entire, in, in all of Europe. Um, Austria, Hungary, you know, I guess from the Austrian perspective, at the very least, I don't know what, you know, the average Serb in Bosnia is thinking. I'm, I'm sure a lot of them have resentment towards them. But um, to a lot of people, it meant economic development. It meant education. It meant, you know, all those things that we kind of like, oh, you're, you're justifying imperialism. Um, how dare you? But, I mean, there is truth to that. Um, mm-hmm. they were doing that. They were, they were providing, um, you know, things like infrastructure and, and roads schools and, they, and roads they actually and put stuff the first uh, electric lights in Sarajevo, you know? So yeah, they're, they're doing shit. I got, a, I got an interesting quote that I want to talk to you about. So from sleepwalkers, the targeting of the Archduke thus exemplified one abiding strand in the logic of terrorist movements, namely that reformers and moderates are more to be feared than outright enemies and hardliners. What do you think about that? Well, I think I think that's interesting. Because, well, first and foremost, everyone needs their boogeyman, right? Mm-hmm. And second of all, it makes sense that I don't. I mean, we don't know what they were really thinking. However, if you were, if we're going to speculate, and and you know, there part of me just thinks that it was just an easy target, and they wanted the war. They're just like, hey, this is going to be an easy target. Like, why not just kill him? Um, another part of me thinks that they were worried about the. You know the the autonomy the the autonomy in Aust- uh, Serbia the you know the South Slavic autonomy would would uh, would uh, quench the thirst of many Serbian radicals. You know it would it would cause them to be like, all right, we're better off with Austria, so there's no need to want to go back to the homeland type of thing. Right. So I think right. that's I mean, where the threat that's is. That's kind of the 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 ironic part for me about it is that. You know, a lot of these South Slavic animosity towards Austria-Hungary was that they felt subjugated. They felt oppressed in, in one way or another. They felt less than. And so people like Archduke Ferdinand come in and were like, all right, cool. Well, let's, let's fix some stuff, right? Let's, let's find something that, that, you know, works for you guys kind of, but mostly for us. But still, it's going to help you out, right? And that would, that would have the, as you put it, would have the result of a lot of people who are living in Bosnia being like, eh, eh, the Austrians aren't so bad. You know, they built me a road and we have lights now and, you know, people are being educated. They're not as bad as, as we thought they were, right? All it took was some level-headed moderate leader in, Aus- in, in the empire to, you know, set things straight. And so they'll, they'll take the, uh, they'll take the peanuts where they can get it, so to speak, right? But it, it kind of solves for some of the issues in some ways that they had in the first place, that the reasons that they, uh, that they even set on the path of, of being anti-Austrian. But their solution seems counterintuitive. It's like, let's, let's kill the person that actually wants to make a difference there because we're not the ones that are going to benefit directly from it. It's, it's very fascinating. But well, yeah, before you get the I mean, I mean, a lot of these nationalist movements—they're—they're—they're they're, they're geared, they're—they're—they're they're, uh, 
they're they're fueled by uh, megalomania. You know, it's it's the it's the own desires of like you know the people who are kind of forming these. And um, right. I think you see that with a lot of modern activist movements as well, where it's the the problem creates the need for for you know you you to solve it type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the solution is sometimes worse than the problem. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's for for their own existence, uh, for their justification. Um, it, you know, they need they need to have that um, that that problem that they're solving. Right. Well, I, I do want to take this back a little bit because before people start getting the wrong impression about Archduke being like a martyr or something like that. I'd, I'd like to give a little background on him before we go over the assassination, because we haven't really talked about um, Ferdinand Magellan here. <laughs> um, so Ferdinand, uh, his uncle, was the Habsburg Emperor of Austria-Hungary. His name is Franz Josef. Uh, and the emperor already had a son and an heir, so Ferdinand was basically off the hook for most of his life responsibility-wise. Um, he was third in line, for succession, but no one really seriously considered that he would become the emperor. So they kind of just wrote him off and left Ferdinand to do whatever the fuck he wanted. Apparently, he really liked botany, like flowers and shit, right? This was one of the nicer hobbies that he had uh, that he was able to enjoy as the Archduke of the Empire with no real responsibilities, right? Um, We'll get into his other hobbies later. Ferdinand's upbringing was pretty standard for the time. You know, it was very conservative, very military-focused, and he quite liked it. You know, this was very different, though, from the emperor's actual heir, Crown Prince Rudolf, however. So Rudolf, this kid was born as the first boy after a string of a bunch of unwanted girls. You know you know how that goes with, with uh, monarchies, right? They're always shooting for a, a guy, and, you know, uh, Joseph's uh, wife keeps popping out a bunch of girls. So, you know, he comes along, and they're like, ah, we got one, right? And they're, everyone's really excited about it. They finally have an heir. And they were so excited about it that when he was born, the emperor makes Rudolph the commander of, the, of an entire infantry regiment. We're talking about a baby that was just born is now, is now the commander of an entire infantry regiment. And I wonder if somebody lost their job to a baby, uh, which I think is really funny. Um, but yeah, you can imagine from a young age that Rudolph had a lot riding on him. And he was put under the tutelage of a guy by the name of Major General Count Leopold Gondrick. And this guy was a total prick, uh, you know, like the toxic masculinity kind. And he was given free reign to do whatever he wanted to Rudolph to turn him into a man. You know what I mean? And he made Rudolph like exercise outside for hours in the winter. And he would like shoot guns near his head in the middle of the night to wake him up. You know, that kind of shit, basically hazing him. And by 1865, this kid, Rudolph, he's, he's already beginning to show some signs of mental distress, but the emperor just thought he was a pussy, and he kept pushing Gondekor to toughen him up, which you should probably read that as, like, abuse, right? He was telling him, go ahead and abuse him. He's, he's being a pussy, right? Uh, uh, Ferdinand, on the other hand, coming back to him. Go fire a fucking gun in front of his head and wake him up. He's being a yeah. bitch. Yeah, he's, he's just being a little bitch. 
Um, Imagine, Ferdinand it reminds me hand. of, it reminds yeah. me of uh, like when people are, uh, a, I know a guy, <laughs> I'm not really friends with him any, anymore, but I know I was friends with a guy who, who, um, who was like a troubled youth and uh, he had one of those boot camp, you know how like they had those military schools, they like take so, like, kids in the kids? middle of the uh-huh. night. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> they took this, they took him in the middle of the night when he was in uh, like a, like a, 15 or so like 15 uh-huh. or 16 they abducted him and it went, they abducted him like, get over it boy get over it boy you're going to burn over <laughs> like they <laughs> um but yeah i don't know sorry for interjecting it just made me think of that <laughs> okay um where was i okay so ferdinand right we're going to compare this to ferdinand's upbringing because ferdinand had a pretty easy life he did end up joining the army and he became a captain within a year Although the merits of which are probably pretty shaky. Dude's an archduke. Of course he's going to move up in the ranks. But that's when he ends up picking up a second hobby. So he goes from flowers to hunting, right? Now, a lot of people hunted back then, especially, you know, like rich people. Um, But allegedly, Ferdinand was a serial murderer of animals. He apparently hunted and killed over 300,000 animals traveling all over the world and bringing back all sorts of rare trophies and endangered species. Dude's a straight-up murderer. Uh, I don't know. If you see, hey, man, it's 1800s, and you see, you know, a a, a leopard or something, or if you see a a lion or a a rhino, you've never seen that before. Pretty cool to shoot it and bring it home. So you ever ever hear that that theory that... um, uh, killing animals is like one of the uh, one of the traits of a serial killer, right? Like if you harm or kill animals, like this guy was on that spectrum. Not if you kill like, big game animals. No, 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 no. He he shot literally everything that moved that wasn't an Austrian. <laughs> like that's his mo. He's very well known for like this, he just he wanted to shoot and kill literally everything, which he just had like this serial obsession with murdering animals. Okay. So that's the context I want to put this around. Also, apparently, Ferdinand was kind of a dick, like super hot-tempered kind of guy, and people reportedly didn't like him very much. Uh, Nobody wanted to be around Ferdinand at all, and this is up until he met his future wife, Sophie. Apparently, she brings out like like some of Ferdinand's better qualities, right? More soft and tender instead of more dickish and murderous um but back to rudolph for a moment i'm going to compare and contrast here so he's forced to marry princess stephanie of belgium for obviously political reasons right and by many accounts she was a dull woman and rudolph really hated her right this is just like another thing to add to this list of shit that was slowly killing rudolph's mental health right like he had he was like abused as a kid real big you know pressure to to be the emperor, and now he's forced to marry a woman that he just hates, right? So we can kind of see where this is going here, right? Two rich Austrian guys, two completely different lives. Anyway, so to make a long comparison short, Rudolph ends up taking a 17-year-old lover that he, you know, had, and he goes to his hunting lodge, and they sign a suicide pact, and he shoots her in the head, and then he kills himself. And now Ferdinand is the heir to the throne. Kind of. So the emperor didn't like Ferdinand at all. 
Remember the part about Ferdinand being kind of a dick? Well, that, that didn't really help the situation very much. So first, and this is an interesting element to it, the emperor says that Ferdinand's unfit to be the emperor because he had a lung disease, tuberculosis, which he did, right? That, that's true. That part is true. Remember tuberculosis for later. That's, it's important. So Ferdinand, instead of, you know, getting the, you know, blessing of the, of the king, uh, of the emperor to be the heir, he just goes off traveling the world instead. And apparently killing a shit ton of animals in foreign countries cures tuberculosis because when he got back, he was like all better. Um, and then the emperor's Take next note of excuse, that, guys. Yeah, seriously. The, the emperor's next excuse for why he didn't want him to be the heir is that he didn't like his future wife, Sophie, and he forbade them from getting married. Now, she was a rich countess, but, like, she was only a countess and, like, not bougie enough for the emperor. So that wasn't going to fly. Finally, in 1900, Ferdinand hits a jackpot. Apparently... Pope Leo Twelfth, Kaiser Wilhelm II, and Tsar Nicholas II, all of those dudes plead to the emperor to let Ferdinand get married to this girl. I don't know why. I was missing a bunch of context for it, but I just found that little piece of information pretty interesting. And, you know, the emperor finally bends, and he's like, fine, you can marry Sophie, and they get married the next year, but there was a catch. And the catch was... He had to swear an oath that excluded both of his children from the line of succession and Sophie couldn't be a part of any official ceremonies, like any official emperor ceremonies, which is a little like fucking underhanded, but Ferdinand takes, takes the deal, he marries Sophie, and he becomes the heir, right? All right, back to Rudolph for a bit. I know he's dead at this point, but it's important. Even though he was mentally broken the guy was pretty good politically. He had some pretty good ideas. He understood that the empire was multi-ethnic. You know, there was the Czechs, the Slovaks, the Poles, Italians, Croats, you know, all the people. But Austrians and Hungarians, they were at the top. And with all of this nationalism growing all over Europe and the empire in decline, you know, Austria was called the sick man of Europe. I think we've, we mentioned this on, on previous episodes. You know, Rudolf kind of understood that he needed the empire to be more inclusive to prevent the empire from fracturing under the pressure of this growing nationalism. And so Ferdinand actually tried to follow in Rudolf's footsteps and modernize the empire, but he took it like a step further. Like Rudolf, Ferdinand had become obsessed with this issue of nationalism in the empire. He saw it as a threat. But where Rudolf wanted to do like a couple of small minor reforms, Ferdinand wanted to just gut the whole system and, you know, completely revamp it. And Ferdinand's plan was kind of like setting up a United States of Austria, giving specifically people in the South, those those South Slavs, the ability to kind of rule jointly. Now, again, I don't want you to think that Ferdinand is a good guy here, particularly. Apparently, he's pretty racist. He hated Hungarians. We mentioned that already. He hated the Slavs. He didn't really like the Jews either, you know? So he's, he's not off to a good start here. He had this real, like, Austrian supremacy ideology. 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 <laughs> Put the emphasis on the wrong syllable there. He had a real Austrian supremacy ideology. And, 
you know, he still thought that Austrians had the right to push around the minorities because they were minorities, right? Like in the literal sense, it was all a political calculation. Given that those minorities, if he were to give them more autonomy and the right to vote, that would, you know, kind of solve for the nationalism problem. But Austrians would still hold the majority vote and thus still hold the power. But legitimately, I think, and this is the interesting part of all of this, I think sometimes you can do the right thing for the wrong reasons. You know, who knows what would have happened if Ferdinand didn't die and he had the opportunity to enact this plan of his. Maybe there'd still be a United States of Austria today. Who knows? Probably not, though, because when we think about all the other shit that was going on, you know, starts to give me the sense that something was going to go down whether or not he was shot. But it's interesting to think about. So it, I think it's interesting to think about those alternate histories. Yeah. The United States of Austria. Um, mm-hmm. But it, it certainly seems just just uh, this the, the things were at a breaking point in 1914. If it, For if, sure. If it wasn't if it wasn't his death, it, it, you know, it, like World War One could have happened multiple times before he even died, you know. Right. So it's um, but I mean. I guess this is a good uh, transition to talk about the assassination. Yeah, yeah, pretty close, yeah. I, anyway, just to wrap that part up, I think this probably could have been a net good thing, but, you know, it would have been mostly a good thing for Austria and not for, you know, you know and for Bosnia too, but, but like a bad thing for Serbian nationalism, which, you know, to your point, we can kind of talk about the Serbian side of this. Um, so Gavrilo Princip is the kid who shot Archduke Ferdinand, I think his story is pretty interesting, too, uh, especially juxtaposed against uh, Archduke Ferdinand. They're very different people. This guy's born in 1894, but the exact date is a little weird and also kind of important for later. We'll talk about that. Um, so he was born in a little, like, nowhere town in Bosnia that the locals fondly referred to as, and I'm going to butcher this, Vukojebina, something like that which apparently translates to the place where wolves go to fuck <laughs> or something like that. Nice. <laughs> anyway, it's, it's a poor town in the middle of nowhere and he's born into a poor family and he's in a poor country, right? So it's just everything about it is poor. Um, he's also a sickly kid. He was a sickly kid all his life. When he was born, they didn't even name him at first because they thought he wasn't going to make it. Their, their family actually had nine kids, uh, but only three of them end up surviving. Um, he was born a Bosnian Orthodox Serb, which is obviously important to the story. Um, but despite being poor, uh, this kid was actually really good in school. And he was one of the very few Bosnians at the time who actually could read like illiteracy rate. I think you mentioned this earlier, Henry, the illiteracy rate at the time was like 88%. 88% of people cannot read, which is very high. Um, but this kid, he, he read a ton of books, real dense ones too. The kind of books that would probably self-radicalize a person, also important for later. Um, so eventually, this kid, he, he follows his older brother to Sarajevo, uh, you know, the big city in Bosnia, and he gets out of his little town to study. And his brother finances the whole schooling and all of that, and this is when all the good stuff starts to happen, when he gets out of that small Bosnian town. 
This is where he gets into reading anarchist literature, and he becomes friends with two other Bosnian Serbs whose names I'm not even going to bother to pronounce because they're hard. Um, three, the, the three of these kids, this, this little gang, they start joining protests. They put up a bunch of anti-Habsburg graffiti on walls, you know, like teen boy shit. By 1910, a growing nationalist movement in Bosnia gets its first martyr. So the group here is called Louder Bosnia, or Young Bosnia, which, call back to the Young Turks from before, everyone's naming their groups Young whatever. Uh, anyway, Young Bosnia, which was allegedly and very likely created with the help of the groups like the Black Hand in Serbia, their goal was to free Bosnia from the Habsburgs and join up with Serbia. On June 15th, Bosnian Serb Bob Danziariak, some shit like that. Bob, this guy, a, a Bosnian Serb. He, he fires uh, uh, five shots at Bosnia's military governor on a bridge near Gavrilo Princip's house. All five shots missed, and the shooter uses the sixth bullet to commit suicide. So he kills himself. So now being a Bosnian Serb himself, this makes a pretty big impact on, on Princip. You know, by this time, Princip had almost given up on school. He was like entirely devoted to being a Serbian victim and, you know, blaming and building his hatred towards Austria. In 1912, he gets kicked out of school for attending an anti-Habsburg rally. And that same year, the first Balkan War uh, against the Ottomans began and the and Princip walks 170 miles from Bosnia to Serbia so that he can volunteer. This sickly boy. And apparently, the first thing he does when he crosses the border is kiss the ground. I don't know. Just kind of a little flavoring note there. He was really, really into this Serbian idea. So he gets to the recruiting office to try to enlist for this war, and they straight up laugh at him. Remember, this is a scrawny, sickly kid that's trying to join the, the war effort. So they just laugh him off, and he's, you know, he ends up not joining the war. But he does end up staying in Belgrade, and eventually he gets, you know, rejoined by his friends from Sarajevo. And together they get into the radical Serbian scene, and eventually they catch the attention of the Black Hand. Okay, so the arguments here get a bit heated. Some historians say that Princip radicalized himself, and there's kind of a good story behind that, right? Talked about all the things that happened. Others say that he was groomed by the Black Hand. Honestly, after reading a bunch of this shit, I actually think it was both. I think this kid was already pretty radical, but he needed a good push, and, and more importantly, an organization from groups like the Black Hand to actually do anything about it. So, back in Bosnia, the military governor, they declare a state of emergency, they close Serb institutions, they suspend the courts, and they close up the Bosnian parliament. And the military guys in Austria are starting to pitch an invasion of Serbia too. We talked about this a little while ago. Ironically, the guy who stops this, the potential invasion, is Franz Ferdinand. Ferdinand was like the only anti-war voice in Vienna at the time, at least for this particular, you know, go of it. But this dude, 
is pretty tone deaf and he decides on the recommendations of of his military to go to Bosnia on probably the worst possible day. And we were talking about this earlier too. That was June 28th, the day in Serbian history. And if you remember from our prior conversation on it here in this episode or our previous episodes, June 28th is that Battle of Kosovo. That's the important date for Serbian history. It's when it's when those holy Serbian martyrs died fighting the Ottomans in 1389. Also, it's uh, St. Vitus Day, which is an important Slavic religious holiday. Anyway, point is, important day, and, and this dude decides to show up on that day. He decides to show up on that day. France going to Bosnia to like show face was kind of like if Mohammed bin Salman decides to come to New York City on 9-11. You know what I mean? It's like that that was the kind of feel <laughs> that the Bosnian Serbs had about Ferdinand's visit on that day. Like a, a funny comparison. It, I mean, it's true though, right? Like this is their day and and like what they believe is the perpetrator decides to come to their city on that day. You know? If 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 MBS did like a speech in Manhattan <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I think that the war, like, it would it would be just the most ridiculous thing that. Just think media, about how many hardcore the, the American nationalists would just lose their shit if that happened. Oh, I would lose my shit. Yeah, I mean, even I normies would be, I would lose be their so, shit. I would be I would be so pissed. I don't. I mean, MBS. I don't think MBS. He didn't do 9/11, was a boy. but he represents he was a boy Saudi nine, during Arabia, that, when 9/11 you know? happened. But like, it was it, it was uh, I I would I would be upset. I think pretty much every single uh, person I know would be super upset if that if that happened. Right. Well, just just hold that feeling because that's what the Bosnian Serbs felt. Right. And obviously they planned it beforehand, and it was like released in the papers, and that's apparently how they caught wind that hey this dude's gonna be here on this day right so um all right so there's debate about whose idea it was to kill the archduke and here i'm just gonna lean towards it being abyss from the black hands you know i it's it was his idea sure maybe princip could have wanted to have a go at it but like there's no way that he could have pulled it off without help so he and his co-conspirators were in serbia not bosnia you know they'd have to get all the way back to Sarajevo in Bosnia and make a plan and get weapons, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So point is, you know, this kid was young and broke. The plan just feels too... It was obviously a best. He had the right. experience doing that because he had been doing... He had been training Serbian guerrillas uh, in Bosnia um, for, at this point, almost a decade. You know, for he'd been doing this type of work for a really long time. He was, he was the ringleader of multiple plots to to for regicide. He was the most premier um, master of regicide in the world at that right. time. He he was like he was the the Soleimani of his time, kind of. He was more. Well, I'm trying to think of a good comparison right now. Um, I can't. No, no one's coming to mind. But he was just the. Um, he was the guy. Yeah, the the guy. He was the guy. Anyway, the, the, he was clearly the black hand. So I'm just going to go with that on this. 
anyway, so Abyss, he, he helps Princip and, you know, the other, the other guys. He, he helps them out and gets them four handguns, six small bombs, as well as, you know, a bunch of cyanide capsules so that they can kill themselves after the deed was done. It was a suicide mission, basically. And then he goes ahead and smuggles them all back into Bosnia. Now, everything that follows from this point on is so incredibly dumb. And you know what? If they didn't actually pull it off and they didn't kill Archduke Ferdinand and his wife that day, I'd actually find this all incredibly funny. It's, it's a funny kind of sounding story. So just keep that in mind. I'm trying to be sensitive, but it, it, it's, just, it's comical how it went down. So here's you weren't that sensitive when you called them Archduke Franz Magellan. <laughs> well, I mean, that's fair game. <laughs> He's been dead for 100 years. You can make yeah. fun of him. Yeah, you can laugh at his expense at this point. Come on. It's been many years. I'm sure yeah. he's up there like, huh, yeah, that was yeah. crazy, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, that was a funny story. Can't yeah. believe they got me. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, okay, here's the story. So Princip and his boys, they all spread out along the route that Ferdinand was supposed to be traveling, right? Apparently, security was like super lax, like, like almost non-existent lax. Like they didn't see any or very many military guys out and about at all, right? So by all accounts, this should have been a pretty easy hit, but it wasn't for various stupid reasons. So Ferdinand comes rolling by, passing the first guy in the line, and he's in an open-top car, like JFK style. Think about it that way, right? Clear shot. You can get him. This first dude in the line, he pussies out, and he doesn't throw his bomb, and he doesn't try and shoot him. He just, he literally does nothing. Which, like, I don't blame him. You know, he's probably thinking about himself. He's like, I don't want to die, you know, because he's going to have to kill himself. And then Ferdinand drives past the second guy. Now, this guy ponies up, and he manages to throw his bomb at the car. But the driver noticed it, and he speeds up, and the bomb rolls off the back of the car, and it blows up underneath the car that was behind the first car that Ferdinand was in. And something like 20 people end up getting injured, but nobody, including Ferdinand, dies. Everyone survives. Homeboy who throws, this is the craziest part, homeboy who throws the bomb, he manages to take this cyanide capsule, and he decides, I'm going to jump in this river. Remember, there's barely any security to catch him. He just thinks, I'm going to take my cyanide capsule, I'm going to jump in this river, the, the water is going to take me off into God knows where the river goes, and that'll be the end of it. Except, you know, th- th- this should have been like the end of Bomb Boy, but the river that he ends up jumping in, <laughs> it had dried up because it was like super sunny that day. So he ends up, <laughs> he ends up breaking his leg on the fall. And turns out that the cyanide didn't work. It just made him throw up. And then he gets arrested and obviously tortured and, you know, terrible shit happens to him. I think he was actually one of the ones that gets um, that gets uh, executed. We'll talk about that later, though. Um, okay, so Ferdinand, after all this shit happens, right? Bomb just blows up behind him. He goes over and t- tells his driver, like, something like, wow, that dude was nuts. Let's keep going. <laughs> that was his response. Like, instead of, like, fuck this shit, I'm getting out of here. He was like, no, nah, let's keep going. 
Let's keep doing the thing. That was weird, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> that was his response. And, you know, he almost gets killed, and he has just this hubris to just continue on doing his thing. And there was a report, and I don't know if I should believe it or not, but I'll tell it to you guys anyway. There was a report about him wanting to go to the hospital to, like, you know, go and meet with the wounded and schmooze and, you know, make it look good or whatever instead of going to this museum that he was supposed to go to. I'm not sure if that was true or not, but generally what happens next is also pretty nuts. I mean, that would be that would be the smart thing if you were a politician, right? Right, exactly, right? Like, oh, it's, I'm going to continue still a little on nuts. with my, my uh, flamboyant visit and probably piss someone off. You really not— if he had, if he was taking a temperature at all of the public there, and he seemed like he had some temperature there, based off you know some of his beliefs, um, I think he probably would have been like, yeah, it's probably a smart move. It moved if I show some public sympathy to the people who got hurt. Right, uh, this is getting serious because he knew how. I, it, just, it just depends I'm on just the account confused. that you hear, though. I'm just super confused of like, of um. Of like, was it just like total negligence that they let this thing happen? But all right, keep on going. I'm sorry for interrupting you. Yeah, no, it's cool. I mean, I think it just depends, right? This the story is super murky, right? It depends on who you ask. Again, remember, there's no like real good accounts of this, and it's a lot of this is coming from either like well after the war was over, they start asking questions, or you know they're getting information from you know the 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 assassins who they likely tortured to get information from, or you're getting like first second third hand eyewitness accounts like you know there's the one person that's saying apparently franz ferdinand says oh that was crazy let's keep going but at the same time there's other people that are saying he was like oh no i want to go to the hospital and figure it out so i don't really know what was going on exactly right in this head in general it's just kind of crazy and, and this next step was also pretty crazy it's the crazy moment really so depending on who you want to believe about you know what Ferdinand wanted to do after he almost got exploded. Um, Princip is kind of on the sidelines at this point, and he's thinking, ah, shit, I lost my chance. That attempt got botched, and he's just standing there defeated. He's like, I failed, right? Next thing you know, Ferdinand's driver takes a wrong turn. And this probably has something to do with Ferdinand wanting to the hospital, maybe, or, you know, maybe they were just freaking out because they almost got exploded i don't really know the the background behind this is a lot of different opinions on this so the point though is that he takes a wrong turn and he rolls right up to princip he's just standing there like right in front of him it's like basically handing franz ferdinand to princip on a silver platter and princip takes his chance he pulls out the gun and he shoots uh, two shots. One of them hits Sophie in the uh, in the abdomen, and the second one um, goes through uh, Ferdinand's neck and ruptures an artery, and they both die, obviously. So Princip then goes to try to shoot himself, but he gets disarmed by the crowd, and then he tries to take the cyanide, but that gets kicked away, and then he gets arrested, and that was that. Okay. So that was the story. I want to do two loop closers. I, I, I asked you guys to remember. Well, the well you know, the, the famous, the, the last words of uh, Ferdinand. Oh, it's nothing. It's, it's that, nothing. <laughs> no, the, the, last, the last words of Fr Franz Ferdinand, I, this, is, this is what I've heard, was 
is actually very simple. It, it makes you actually kind of sad about it because he said, Sophie, like he's, he said something along the lines of Sophie, oh, my, yeah, my dear wife, you can't die. What about the children? Like and stay then, alive for the children, right? No, but that wasn't his last alive. words. I actually read that after, after she passes, right? Then the, the driver or somebody else that was in the car had noticed that he had like a ton of blood everywhere. And they're like, dude, are you okay? Like, you know, is everything all right? And he's like, oh no, it's nothing. It's nothing. It's nothing. And then he dies. So he must have just been bleeding immediately yep. in turn. Yeah, I mean, it ruptured an artery in his neck. So, yeah. Uh, so I want to close two loops. Um, remember, I asked you to remember about uh, Princip's birthday, right? So I don't remember the exact two dates, but this was June 28th, and his birthday was either... Uh, shit. It was either, forget it. It was either one month before or one month after. I didn't actually write down the dates, right? It, it's, it's Bosnia in the late 1800s. They weren't really good at keeping records. And there was conflicting evidence about when his actual birthday was. And, and why that even is important at all is because there was a law in the Austro-Hungarian Empire that you could not apply the death penalty to anyone under 20 years old. And depending on where his birthday had landed, he was either 19 years old when the crime was committed or he was 20 years old when the crime was committed. And so that made a difference because a bunch of the guys, uh, like the guy who broke his leg <laughs> trying to jump in the river, he gets executed pretty much immediately. But Princip is actually put in jail, and I think they sentenced him to like 20 years or something like that in jail. Now he doesn't last the 20 years, not even close. And this is the second loop that we want to close. And that is Princip was a sickly kid. It was always assumed that he had tuberculosis, but in his last days in that prison, he ends up getting real sick because they treated him like shit. Of course he, he committed regicide. Um, and he ends up contracting tuberculosis in jail. And he ends up dying from tuberculosis in jail. And why is that important? Because who else had tuberculosis? Ferdinand Magellan. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. So, the big, the big so, suspenseful loop, they both had tuberculosis? No, it's, it's more like, you know, <laughs> tuberculosis didn't kill Ferdinand Magellan. <laughs> but... Tuberculosis did kill the guy who killed Ferdinand Magellan. Oh, Danny, I think that's a weak ending loop. <laughs> I don't know. I found that interesting. <laughs> and I want to get you in the last thing. He died of tuberculosis, and first friends didn't happen. To t- <laughs> um, I don't know. That was. And funny. guess what? Both of their favorite colors were blue. <laughs> oh. Um, man, well, so everyone knows what happens after this, after the unfortunate death of Franz Ferdinand Bajellan. They um, all lived happily ever after? Everything worked out. <laughs> <laughs> everything completely worked out. So the Austri- everyone was like, oh my God, this went way too far. Um, the Americans stepped in. They said, hey, 
let's be more like Americans and, you know, not care about other people's businesses. And everyone said, um, yeah, sure. Like, let's just like settle down and uh, let's 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 not get into a major war. The, the the military technology that we have produced is so strong right now and so crazy that like a European war is going to kill millions of people. We can't do this. And, you know, if a European war happens, it will probably give uh, birth to some even crazier ideologies than there are right now. Like, right. I bet there's going to be like a crazy, like really, really bad guy who comes out or, or really, really bad multiple guys that come from this war who, who, who will make even bigger war in the future. And um, we know that will probably happen. And then, um, you know, this will lead to, you know, an iron curtain and communism in one part of the world that kind of uh, prevents people from leaving and makes people live in complete destitute. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, that will all happen, so we should best avoid, avoid this. Um, a nuclear bomb will probably go off. We don't even know what nuclear is at this point in splitting right. atoms. They're, but they're we, just going to make one that. if we do this. We, we, but we predict that happening, so we should, we should not go to war, do World War I. Everyone, guys, we know the risks. We should not do World War I. And they didn't do it. We should all just take up the hobby of flowering. That was, right. that was that's something that's in, in hunting exotic animals right um just like Franz Ferdinand okay. would have wanted just like Franz Ferdinand would have wanted well um unfortunately that doesn't happen and uh the whole world goes to shit so the next episode what we're going to do is we are going and it will be I think our final conclusion of our causes of World War one episode we are going to talk about what happens after this? So, basically, what the response of Austria-Hungary is, and and uh, ultimately, how this turns into a global war, and um, you know, because now we're now we're in a system where there's a bunch of there's a, an alliance system. So, we'll get more into it next episode, but. It is, uh, it's going to be pretty crazy, and I think we're going to talk about the Schlieffen plan, Uh-oh. which is always fun to talk about. Um, the Schlieffen plan being the German plan that they've been obsessed with for decades about what would they need to do if a war broke out. Um, so, man, I'm sad to do the final episode in this series. I know, it's been uh, fun, man. I like really enjoyed this. This has been my favorite series, and I finally feel like we've uh, we've finally did a series without getting distracted with something else. <laughs> well, there wasn't any crazy ass war that popped off or something like that. I mean, there's that us. same war is going on right now, but well, I guess nothing new, you know. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's new in the, over the past couple of months. I don't with know. Falling. Um, but um, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm we're gonna not going to talk about there. There's nothing else happening in the world right now. <laughs> yeah. All right. So um, after we finish this series up, we're going to be talking about uh, wrapping up the year and concentrating on our content for Jan for 2023. But uh, we promise to make our next one a doozy. So um, sorry for the for the increase in time between episodes. It's just been like with the combination of of traveling. Danny's been traveling a lot more than I have, but I've been traveling as well. Um, and then um, 
uh, just like crazy shit, and and like we and, don't want to half the density these of this topic as well. Yeah, is we're not. We don't want. We don't want to half-ass these topics, so we're so we're taking extra time to to make these episodes good. So um, we will see you next week, um, and um, make sure that if you enjoy this podcast, rate and review the show. That is the number one way to support our growth. Please do it. it you don't have rate you rating and reviewing this podcast and i don't want to sound like a beggar right now but it really really helps like it helps tremendously so please rate and review the podcast if you're on apple if you're on spotify it really helps us with our algorithm with getting the outreach out we don't have any like crazy money coming into us and promoting us it's all word of mouth so we need you guys if you guys are fans of the show we need you guys to step up and rate and review the podcast it's like it it's it's crucial um, so please do that. And then, and, um, uh, yeah, you, if you really want to support us more, join our Patreon community, uh, where you get access to our Slack. Sometimes we'll release early episodes on there. So join the Patreon and, uh, we will see you next week, brothers and sisters. Any last words? Nope. All right. Peace. Peace.